0: You're listening to audio from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. If you'd like to learn more about Parkview, find more resources, or give to our ministry, please visit parkviewchurch.org. Good morning, Parkview. My name is Jennifer Lane Murcia, and I volunteer here with the middle schoolers and on the hospitality team, and I'm going to read today's, a portion of today's scripture. So we will be in Luke 5, verses 33 through 39. Follow along with me. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment.
1: Thank you, Jennifer. It's fifth Sunday. So good to have our children in here with us. And they have these neat boxes that say Pizza Ranch on them. Now, how many of you were tempted to grab a Pizza Ranch box? You, looked at, you, you thought, you know, it's quarter to nine, but, you know, what's wrong with a Supreme Pizza at quarter to nine on Sunday morning? Those kids have great stuff in there. Now, kids, listen, okay? If your parents or your older siblings reach for the box or want anything from that box, you just go like this, Okay? Everybody do it with me. Kids, do it with me. Okay, just do this, because it fits into the, today's sermon, all right? And we're going to do something different today, kids. You, I'm going to go through three basic stories, and you actually get to quiz your parents afterwards instead. We're going to do it different than we normally would. So, so, kids, just be ready to quiz your parents on these three stories. Prior to COVID, it was common for churches like ours to be passing a plate as part of the worship we gather our tithes and offerings that way. But even before COVID, some churches were going away from the passing of the plate and the collect, collecting of the offering. And they were doing it based upon the fact that many people who were starting to give online as part of their worship, they were uh, maybe people who only gave once a month. And so you kind of felt like this sense of judgment. You didn't put anything in and, and the plate went by. But people were wondering why not. Or... Uh, Or maybe it's just a different way of giving and sending your support in or whatever. But I want to remind you again that giving of our resources is an act of worship. And that's part of what we do here. We come to worship. And so if you're not in this habit, I want to encourage you to start. And to make sure you do it with a cheerful spirit as instructed by Paul. It's a great step towards growth in your faith. If you're already faithfully giving, I want you to remember to see it as an act of obedience and of faith. If it just automatically comes out of your your account every month, that's wonderful uh, for the faithfulness part. But remember to worship as part of that. So maybe set yourself a a reminder to be thinking in terms of, of, yes, I, I give that to the Lord as an act of worship. If you're a guest with us here today, certainly do not feel any pressure in that way. Just like if you were a guest in my home, I wouldn't be asking you for, to pay for the meal I just served you. So, uh, but for, if you're a regular um, attender and, and member here, we encourage you to be faithfully giving to the ministry of the Lord. We've got a couple exciting weeks coming up for you, so plan on being a part of those. Thomas will tell you more about that in a little bit. So review, I always take you back to uh, Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Last week, Pastor Thomas did a wonderful job of, of talking about proximity producing progress. And we looked at that question of why do some follow uh, Jesus joyfully and others turn away? Because we realize that, that only God can forgive sins and, and, and only God can heal and it's amazing to note how repentant people respond to God. How wonderful that a high and lofty God comes down to those in need. And we can go, come to Jesus like a paralyzed sinner. He will not shame us, he, he, he will not rub our nose in it, He will not ask you how you got in this mess. He will treat your soul with tender care. Isn't that wonderful? As we come to Jesus, we remember that God paid the price so that we could be in proximity to Jesus. Today, we see Jesus dealing with more criticisms, and that just continues to escalate. And Jesus will see uh, he provides clarity about fasting, about the timing, and even purpose. He proclaims himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath, and he proves he is Lord of the Sabbath we will also see that mercy triumphs with Jesus. I've entitled today's message, Critical Issues. Would you pray with me? Father, we commit this time to you now. We ask your blessing upon it. Would you just work in our midst, and Holy Spirit, just have your way in our hearts and lives, and, and just in this time. Father, I ask that you would do what only you can do, And again, we come before you with concerns over a world in turmoil, with the chaos in Israel and Gaza and around. We just think of those who are there representing you and and sharing your message. We just pray for them. Uh, Some of our own global workers that have been displaced, we just lift them up before you and ask you to meet their needs and protect them. Allow them the joy of ministering wherever you move them to. And Father, uh, just be glorified. We pray for the next service and we pray for the service at East Campus. We lift it all up before you and we ask you to work and have your way. In the name of Jesus Christ, we lift up these prayers. Amen. Have you ever been in a position where others are watching you very closely? They're scrutinizing everything you do. Uh, Maybe you're a new employee and you're you're learning the job, and those that know it are watching you very closely. Or, or, Or maybe you're a new driver. How many of you parents have had to train new drivers? Isn't that fun? And you scrutinize what they do. I've had to train five of them, and I've lived through it. I've got three more, and there's a couple of those three that I'm really worried about. But anyway, it's, it's going to be interesting. But There's a lot of scrutiny that goes on. How about that boy arriving at your front porch to pick up your daughter for prom? A little analysis going on there. Just watching and giving him some guidance. Or maybe if you're teaching a class, you feel scrutinized. If you've never been scrutinized, then I encourage you to join a worship team or or become a pastor. Uh, I tell young people who are pursuing ministry, you have to be ready to be scrutinized. You have to be ready to have critics and hear opinions. What we've seen and we'll continue to see is that Jesus draws a lot of attention and with that a lot of opinions and a lot of criticisms. However, I believe there's something far greater to notice here. We're going to look at three separate situations with his critics. Look back with me at that first verse that Jennifer read for us in verse 33. And it says, And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. So it starts with this inquisitive, comparative statement, right? And where's this coming from? At first glance, we'd say, well, obviously, it's a big group of people, the Pharisees, the scribes, Levi, even the disciples, and this large group of tax collectors, because that's kind of where it left off. We look at the synoptic gospels, and we see that Mark doesn't help us a little bit. He's a little vague. He said, some people... And Matthew gives us maybe a little more clarity in verse 14 of Matthew 9. It says, Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? So again, Luke's a little bit more vague. He says, The disciples of John fast often, offer prayers. So do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. It's essential to understand here that when it comes to this matter is that these are highly uh, revered things for the Pharisees. They consider this uh, fasting and prayer very often. They're holy things to do. They're good things that they should be doing. This is what good and religious people were supposed to do. I love what Swindoll writes. He says, the Pharisees prized expressions of piety and self-denial, presuming those activities more pleasing to God. But their ideas came more from Greek philosophy than from Hebrew theology. Virtually all the religious observances God ordained for the nations of Israel involved feasting and celebrating in community. The Pharisees, however, set aside certain days, Mondays and Thursdays, for fasting. And by the time of Jesus, they could no longer distinguish between God's laws and their own oral traditions." Remember, the Pharisees were, were well-intentioned initially. They were trying to keep the nation of Israel pure during that time of prophetic silence. And they, they would encourage Jews to observe God's command. And it was, again, according to their interpretation of those commands. Right? So it's follow the rules as we interpret them for you. They're essentially the religious police of that time. Unfortunately, from the time that the law was first received until this point, there had been a tremendous number of additional laws added on. So we had laws piled upon laws. For them to observe how Jesus was leading his disciples and for them to note the significance differences causes them to be disturbed by Jesus and how he functioned and how he led his disciples. There, there's issues there. They're, they're upset, right? Right? Now, consider what they're implying in that statement. Your disciples are essentially underperforming John's. They're underperforming what the Pharisees would do. Shouldn't your disciples, Jesus, be more holy? Setting an even higher standard? What's wrong with you? Now, remember, again, the disciples of John, John was accustomed to living on little, and his message was one of repentance. He's the last of the Old Testament style prophets. So Jesus responds with a highly informative question and statement. And Jesus now provides clarity about fasting, about its timing and even its purpose. He presents that question. Can can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast in those days. So, even within their own system, the motivation for fast, fasting and praying would have initially been driven by a faithful desire to see the King, the Messiah, arrive, the Redeemer, the Savior. So, understand, Jesus is not diminishing or, or minimizing fasting or prayer here, but rather, he seems to remind them of the purpose and the timing. A new season has come. You could say he's implying why fast and pray, pleading for God to send the Messiah. By the way, the Old Testament would call it bridegroom of Israel. When he's right here with you. Why ask for something that God's already granted? The time now is for celebration. It's not a heavy, sad time. It's a time of great joy. The wait is over, so Jesus is saying, "Listen, there's a season for this." Ecclesiastes three talks about there's a there's a for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. He's saying it's not the time for fasting. Imagine going on a cruise ship, and that you're determined that that uh, time on your cruise ship is going to be your time of diet. If you've ever been on a cruise ship, you know you can't diet on a cruise ship. There's not much point. It's just not the time. And Jesus is communicating, listen, the time for fasting will be soon enough. The crucifixion. But even joy follows again after the resurrection. But then there'll be the ascension. And then there'll be, oh, fasting for Him to return. Now understand, Jesus' words here would have not initially been understood, but by the time that Luke's readers are, are reading this, they would have understood post-cross and, and resurrection. He's saying the time's going to come when you want me here. This is Jesus really his first mention of his death. It's kind of vague, but it's, it's there. Then Jesus talks about the old and the new, not mixing well. Look at verse 36. He told them a parable, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the. Uh, if he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the old will not match the. From the new will not match the old. This hits home to me. I, I was the youngest of five sons, and, and my mother had a great challenge trying to keep us clothed. It was not easy. You know, we didn't have video games. If we weren't inside playing a board game or reading a book, we were outside tearing something up, mostly our clothes. And I got the hand-me-down jeans, and my two brothers that are older than me were not taller than I, so I always had short jeans, which was irritating. My, my ankles caught cold in the winter. And, um, but my mother would so faithfully patch up our torn knees and she carefully would go to her 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 vault of torn jeans. You never threw away an old pair of jeans because she would cut these pieces out. And then she'd sew that patch on. And that was I hated that. And then what's worse is then when you ripped the patch, you'd get a patch on a patch. We had patches holding on patches. But the idea here was she never went and took that rare new pair of jeans and cut it up. She cut up the old ones. And then he talks about the wineskins, old, old wineskins and new wine. And, and, and understand that they would take the hide of a goat and they would seal it up and they would pour that grape juice in there, they would add water to it. And there would be fermentation and expansion. This was about uh, providing something safe to drink. Uh, grape juice was very rare for them to drink because it had to be in season. They didn't have refrigeration. And that, that skin and that hide would expand. But you couldn't use it again. You couldn't put fresh wine in there. It wouldn't expand again. Then he has this interesting statement here in 39. No one after drinking old wine desires new. For he says the old is good. Now this creates creates a lot of interpretive uh, confusion I would say. With this does he highlight the Pharisees refusal to accept that change has come? Is he really talking about which wine is better? Or is he highlighting an unwilling spirit, a change-resistant spirit? Certainly, Jesus is communicating that the new has come. The old covenant has been replaced with the new. When we have our time of communion, we, 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 we review what the, that words from, the words from Jesus. This is the new covenant in my blood. There's, a new day has dawned. And this is Jesus. This is the one for whom generations had waited. And Jesus is the fulfillment of of prophecy. And they're struggling. Now, let's jump to a a different issue. Who is the Sabbath about? Jesus proclaims himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath. Look with me at at chapter 6, verse 1. On the Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat? And he also gave it to those with him? And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Again, we remember the context of the Sabbath. It goes all the way back to creation account. And God worked for six days and he took the seventh day to rest. Did, did God need to do that? No. He sets it for, as an example for us, right? Uh, of working and then resting. God didn't need that rest. But and here's the, the origin of the Sabbath. But here again, uh, Jesus obsessed them. This time because he let his disciples eat. Can you picture an angry Pharisee? This is where I told you, kids, to have your finger up, ready to go. These, these Pharisees kind of have this, uh, they want to judge, right? When I first became a youth pastor at my last church, I, I had a, a, a woman who was one of my youth sponsors, and she was about this tall, just a woman of God, great. And I, I, I always told her that I didn't know what she looked like for the first two years uh, of meeting her, because she always came at me like this. I had to see around her finger. And it was a good things. sometimes it was just... Or reminding me that God's using me and all that sort of thing. Or occasionally it was because I was out of line, but she'd be like that. Took me a long time to see what she looked like, but but you envision these people, they're coming at you, their jaws are tight with anger, and they're, they're they're ready to judge. And these disciples are at the beginning of their of their missionary journey with Jesus and they need to eat. And according to Deuteronomy 23, they're allowed to enter a farmer's field and to to glean and eat. They're not allowed to harvest. You can just eat a little bit. You can't, you know, bring a bunch with you, right? I had a man working for me years ago who would tell the most entertaining stories. His family was very tight financially and very conservative. And it was a big deal when their family went out to a buffet to eat. But when they went to the buffet to eat, there was rules on how you eat. You were not allowed to fill uh, fill yourself up with breads and things, but you were always supposed to take rolls because when you come back to the table, you take your rolls and you drop them in mom's huge purse right there for later. But then you eat the good stuff, the expensive stuff, and and, by the time they leave, their, their mom's purse was just filled with food because they wanted to get as much out of it as they could. Again, they were allowed to eat in the farmer's field, but the idea was not to take food with them. No doggy bags allowed in the field. But notice Jesus, the response of Jesus, have you not read what David did? Now, if you're speaking to religious leaders here and you say, have you not read, you've basically backhanded them, you've insulted them here. You put them in a bit of a defensive posture, like, of course, we've read about David, right? <laughs> He's got them a little bit upset. But see, they have put rules over everything. They've lost the intent. And he reminds him about David as God's anointed. He he was not on the throne yet, but he went in and ate the showbread or the bread of presence out of need. This bread that was made and and replaced every Sabbath and then the, the priests could have it as a provision. He's saying, listen, David had authority given by God. A stunning statement. And then Jesus now makes that proclamation. He says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, don't try to hold me to the rules of the Sabbath. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I can decide what's done here. And maybe you've seen the sign private drive or, or do not trespass. No trespassing, right? That, that, that that has a rule. It's communicating something to you. you. This is a boundary you cannot cross. But who can cross it? The one whose private drive it is. It doesn't restrict them. And, and, and Jesus is saying, listen, you're trying to hold me to rules of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is mine. The disciples and I will eat as needed. Jesus doesn't bother addressing their interpretation of the law, which is interesting. Rather, he's addressing the subject of authority. Listen, David went and ate the showbread, and I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is my day. The Sabbath day is about me. It's a massive statement. It's shocking. Now Luke takes us to the synagogue, righteous observance of the Sabbath. Jesus now proves that he is Lord of the Sabbath. Look with me at verse 6 of chapter 6. On another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him but he knew their thoughts and he said to the man with the withered hand come and stand here so he rose and stood there and Jesus said to him to them i ask you is it lawful on the sabbath to do good or do harm to save or to life or to destroy it after looking around at them all he said to them stretch out your hand he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. So understand now, Jesus proclaimed his position to be Lord of the Sabbath, and now he, he proves his position as Lord of the Sabbath. The presence of this man in the synagogue is, is curious. We, we don't really know why he's there. It, was he there just because Jesus was there, and he felt maybe emboldened to come in? Or, or uh, was he a plant of the religious leaders? Did they, did they put him there, tempting Jesus to violate the Sabbath according to their rules? Or, or did Jesus maybe notice him as on his way in? Maybe he was kind of in the background, but Jesus saw him. I love that about Jesus because he, he proves himself to be that, that God who sees. There's so much going on here. Understand the the, the transition from the old covenant to the new covenant era. It's brought in by Jesus. And and notice how much Jesus was questioned and watched and even criticized. And and he's he's the bridegroom. He's the one who brings the new covenant. And the law was the source of the Pharisees' concern. That's what they, they cared about, the law. But Jesus valued people over their interpretation of the law. You remember a few weeks back when we were looking at Jesus in his hometown, and he read from Isaiah, he read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. They don't get it. The religious leaders, they don't get it. They don't get that Jesus is on a mission of mercy. And he does that with the authority to do so. Isn't it sad that we have these religious leaders and they're watching him with the sole purpose of accusing him? The desire of their heart is to find something to criticize. Find a reason. Sad. Understand that mercy is not the central concern of the self-righteous. Mercy is not the central concern of the self-righteous. So Jesus, in their midst, says to that man, come and stand here. I would suggest to you that that was probably an intimidating situation for this man to be brought up to central focus. He knows their judgment of him, and they know what they think about why he has a withered hand. They're going, it's the sin in that man's life, right? And Jesus is saying, come, stand here. Can't you just imagine his heart beating faster, wondering what Jesus is going to do? Am I going to be condemned by this man? Am I going to be condemned by everybody here? Is he going to do something miraculous? And then Jesus turns his attention to them. And he asks that question, is it lawful? That's their question, right? That's the question they like. And he uses their own question, is it lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy? And and imagine, there's this this pause, there's this silence, it's awkward. Because Jesus asks the question, then he waits. And he looks. And as Jesus is about to make eye contact with him, probably a lot of them were just looking away. They didn't want to be called. Clear that they weren't going to answer him. You see, it was then an issue of mercy. They knew the words found in Hosea. Hosea 6.6 6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Nowhere in their hearts and in their minds was there a desire to be merciful. They were there to find a reason to accuse. Accusing had become their obsession and you and I stop and we say how can these godly ones not care about the man why aren't they as excited about the possibility of witnessing this man be healed you know your heart is hard when you're not rejoicing with the man who's about to be healed So he's addressing the heart here, isn't he? The matters of the heart, the issues. How tragic that they have the Messiah standing in their midst. And they're thumbing through their rule books, going, aha! Do you think that this kind of thinking still exists today? Sure it does. Mindsets that are fixed on criticizing. Remember, the, the initial motivation of the Pharisees was a good one. If if the prophets are going to be silent, we've got to go back. We've got to remember the rules, and we've got to stay as close to those rules as we can so that we are on track when the Messiah comes. It's good in, in its initial desire, right? But I suppose it got to them to be the revered ones, the ones that everybody sought for the counselor, the ones that everybody listened to when they said, hey, hey, you shouldn't do that. They got fond of that idea. It does matter. We, we, our pastors and elders work hard here to make sure that we are functioning according to Scripture. It's an essential role. We need to do that. But we're never to weaponize it. That's not the purpose. The purpose is making sure that we're staying true to the Word of God. But we don't run around looking for reasons to accuse Because central to the gospel is Jesus' mercy. You see, Jesus establishes both his uh, uh, authority over the Sabbath and a proper perspective on Sabbath behaviors. Understand this. Mercy triumphs with Jesus. Mercy triumphs with Jesus. We'll see it again and again if that phrase isn't music to your ears then then either you weren't listening or you just don't get it i believe that many of you are here today because you understand you understand that mercy triumphs with jesus and you understand that it's because of that mercy that you can even come and you can find redemption and have a relationship with god cuz you understand that you can't get there on your own nothing you can do can accomplish that but by the mercy of christ And Jesus is in that situation where he's worried about whether or not he's going to keep a bunch of grumpy rule followers happy or he's going to be merciful to to one who needs it. Every one of us needs that mercy that Jesus offers. Folks, that's why we love him. That's why we're grateful for him that we understand the condition that we're in. It may not be a physical issue, but it's an issue of a heart that's not right. It's an issue of, of being born into sin and continuing on in sin and being condemned for eternity. But Jesus, in His mercy... I want you to think now about these pointed fingers. We have the Pharisees who are doing this. But we have a Jesus who does this. Isn't that great? It's not a, it's not a condemning, listing off all the things. It's, it's saying, come. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus is saying, this, there's a new way. There's a danger that you and I can even face of putting religion over the relationship. And, and I think some of us, is, uh, the longer we're Christians, the better we get at doing the things that Scripture tells us to do, the more likely we are to have our finger go up towards somebody else. And can I just remind you how desperately you need Mercy. I don't, I don't care how good, good at the spiritual disciplines you are or whatever. You need mercy. We all do. And that should keep our hearts set in the right place. Where we're living life grateful for the mercy we received and quick to extend it to those who would need it. Has that thankfulness ex- caused you to extend mercy to others who need it. Would you just bow your heads with me for prayer? Just take a few seconds just to go before the Lord and ask where you are with this. If you've been on the condemning side of things, would would you just confess that? And go back in your mind and savor the mercy by which you've been saved. Lord, it is our desire to exalt you and to recognize that because of that merciful way, we can even approach you, Lord. We thank you for the mercy of Jesus. We thank you for your plan to send him. Lord, thank you that his way is different. Father, may we be careful to live the way we're to live, but, Lord, may we be people who are people of mercy. Because, Lord, we understand that mercy triumphs with Jesus. And we give you thanks and praise. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.